Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series powered by the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest-run student organizations at Harvard Law School. My name is Romine Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business. Today, we're excited to be joined by Patrick Chung, founder and general partner at XFund, a seed-stage venture fund based in Silicon Valley. Patrick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Romine. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Patrick, maybe it'd be helpful to take a step back and, and talk about how you got into venture capital. You know, as a quick primer for our listeners, you had an impressive academic career, amassing degrees from Harvard College, Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, and Oxford, and have held similarly successful but divergent roles in practice, you know, consulting at McKinsey, being an operator at Zephyr, and then a venture partner at NEA and X Fund. Can you talk a little bit about different types of roles that you held in your career and how you ultimately found yourself in VC? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I uh, graduated uh, JDMBA, um, uh, actually, be, actually before I did that, before I graduated from uh, from college and, and grad school, um, the first real kind of job that I had out of um, out of any type of schooling was at McKinsey, and I felt like McKinsey was such a fantastic place um, to really begin a career um, in business because, you know, when you graduate, I studied environmental science, um, both undergrad and, and at grad school, and when you're, you know, when you're dealing with kind of um, soil samples and, you know, uh, game theoretic models of fisheries, um, you really have very little sense for business, and McKinsey was a great place just to learn about business in general, um, because of the amazing uh, client group that McKinsey has, you really got to see um, the insides of some of the most successful large companies in the world and kind of develop a mental model for, okay, this is what a successful large company looks like from the inside. Um, after McKinsey, I had an opportunity to join a bunch of classmates um, and start, um, a, as you said, a, 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 a uh, startup in the first dot-com boom called Zephyr. We won the Harvard Business School business plan competition in our year. Um, we ended up raising well over $100 million in venture. And that startup was really the first taste of freedom and possibility where you, you know, once you learned about how a big company worked, you could say, okay, how could I do it different or better in this new world in the in, in, a, in a kind of booming uh, environment. And I think really importantly, being in, in a startup with people that you genuinely loved um, was an amazing experience because you really got to work with people that didn't feel like work. Um, you know, these are some of my best friends from high school and college and eventually in life um, who I got to start this company with. And that was really a very special experience. Um, after I did JDMBA, I then went to NEA, um, and similarly to McKinsey, um, it was such a fantastic place to learn how the venture capital industry works. NEA is the largest venture capital firm uh, in the country, probably the world. Uh, it's one of the most well-established, one of the most highest performing, um, and it really gave you a great mental model for, aha, this is what venture capital is, here's how it works at the highest levels. Uh, and then lastly, when we decided to spin out X Fund from NEA and Excel, um, it was kind of that same uh, metaphor analogy to spinning out or doing Zephyr after McKinsey was now that you've kind of got your grounding about this is how proper venture capital works, um, how, how do you think you, you might be able to do it differently or how do you think you might be able to innovate on the model? So talk a little bit more about that thought process, right? So you were well-established at NEA and, and you made a pivotal decision. You took a risk and then you founded the X Fund. So talk a bit more about that thought process you faced when you considered making the jump. You know, how did you think about the pros and cons? 
And how'd you come to the decision to venture out from an established prestigious institution to trekking out on your own and, and doing a new and unproven fund? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think it's really important to remember that X Fund is a family fund of NEAs. And so at NEA, I uh, headed the consumer investment practice and founded and uh, ran our seed stage investing practice. And as part of the seed stage investing practice, we had a really unique opportunity to get into business with Harvard and with Excel Partners uh, to do a new type of fund. And so the first X Fund um, did really well. We expected to see 500 deals. We actually saw 3,500 deals. Uh, the companies that we invested in, um, you know, did, did incredibly well for us. Um, and it was a really unique opportunity in X Fund One to get into business with two amazing partners, Harvard University and Excel Partners. And so when we spun out um, X Fund Two from Excel and NEA, it was with the enormous support and help of uh, my NEA partner, Harry Weller, uh, Scott Sandell. Uh, Jim Breyer and Ping Lee from Breyer Capital and from Excel Partners, and then the then uh, Dean of Engineering at Harvard, Terry Murray, and the current Dean of Engineering at Harvard, Frank Doyle. Um, so it was with a lot of help that we, we got to we got to try this experiment. Um, and so it was really kind of the best of both worlds. We had a really we had a new organization, a new firm, but with the backing of some larger institutions. And I think that that's really a a hallmark of a really great institution. Um, just like, you know, there have been so many McKinsey alums that have spun out companies after their experience at McKinsey. Um, you see there are so many uh, ex-Googlers who are spinning out companies, and indeed Google's parent company, Alphabet, um, has an explicit model of how to take innovation, take the best people, and, and try new things with it. Um, you're starting to see a whole um, raft of people who used to work at Facebook spinning companies out. And so it was really, I think, a giant um, um, kudo to NEA and to Excel um, to say, okay, we are a strong institution that actually innovates on these models and is able to spin out uh, cool, interesting stuff. Yeah. And so X-Fund really is actually, you know, it's, it's a very interesting uh, fund in terms of the focus area. Um, talk about a bit more about the thesis, right? We talk about what the unique value prop of X Fund is, and especially when thinking about you know the place of this fund in the larger venture landscape. And you alluded that alluded to that a little bit in how NEA and Excel were kind of thinking of an innovative model. But talk a little bit more about the X Fund's thesis and and the value prop of the fund. Sure. So so X Fund's investment thesis is to back what we call liberal arts founders. Um, and well, what do we mean by that? Um, we mean that the most technical aspects of building a technology or a company today have really been abstracted away. Um, and so if you just maybe, you know, five or six years ago, if you wanted to start a, you know, a simple website um, company that, that was selling stuff online, you would have had to go to HP or Dell and you would have had to buy uh, your own server, you would have had to drive down to San Jose or Waltham uh, and rack your own server, configure it, bring it up. And in the middle of the night at 3, 3 a.m. when you got a robocall that said, hey, you know, your servers are down, um, your ability to wake yourself up, drive down there, debug the server, reinitialize it, bring it back up, was actually a competitive advantage because your ability to do that affected the uptime of your website. Um, uh, today, if you wanted to do the same thing, no one does that anymore. They all turn on Amazon Web Services, and you will never be able to configure a data center better than Amazon. You will never have better uptime than Amazon. And so that very technical skill 
has all of a sudden been taken off the table um, as a competitive advantage. So you can look at across almost all for, for what we do, which is you know generally uh, capital efficient um, companies. So software, digital health. Um, you know, we because of the size of our fund, we won't do capital intensive things like alternative energy, semiconductors, biopharma, medical devices, stuff like that. But so for what we do. Most of those very technical aspects of, of, of building a company have been abstracted away. You no longer have to rack your own server. You no longer have to structure your own database. You don't even have to design your own logo if you don't want to. And so what's left? Um, and our view is that what's left is that unique social insight that comes in the form of, you know, hey, I've got a guest room in my apartment. And on nights when no one's staying there, why don't I just rent it out to a stranger's hotel room? If you go to the Airbnb website, it is not a technical accomplishment. Um, there are photos of people's guest rooms and a fairly simple calendaring function, which you know I don't even know if they built themselves. But what makes that company so great is the social insight that occurred. And we believe that you know when we partner with a university like Harvard or uh, or, or other universities, Stanford, Berkeley, MIT, um, that we, we want to back people who have that um, ability to think laterally, who are not strictly technical so that they're just trying to make something better and faster, that they're actually having a unique insight that we believe will build uh, the most lasting, durable, amazing companies. Yeah, that's interesting, especially because, you know, do we... Do we? Do you think that we continue to move that way in a, in a world where this infrastructure continues to get increasingly subsidized, and so liberal arts founders shine, or or do we reach an inflection point where we're where we actually revert to the opposite side of the spectrum and we say, you know, technology is becoming so complex, or the applications of complex technology like deep learning, AI, AR, VR become so powerful that you know the real winners are actually going to swing to the opposite side of the spectrum and be technical founders. So I'm interested to actually hear your thoughts on that, right? Because you know this X fund thesis does, in many ways, actually go against the thesis of other prominent funds in the valley, who you know, for all intents and purposes, have a soft requirement of, of technical co-founders to invest. So do you see that gauge, um, you know, continuing along? And it might not be linear; it might revert in in different types of ways. But how do you think about that, you know, going forward? Yeah, that, that's such a uh, deep insight and, and, a, and a really good question. I think that ultimately you can be successful in both ways. Um, there are definitely fields for which you must have a deep technical background. If you want to design a new semiconductor, like you can't just waltz off the street and say, I'm going to design a new semiconductor. If you want to bring a drug to market and through the FDA, that requires a, a, a huge amount of technical competence. Um, the, 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 you know, Deep learning, AI, I mean, once again, those are, you probably need a PhD in computer science. Um, but I think for a, for a venture firm and for an investment vehicle, um, you can be successful in both ways. You just have to play to your strengths. So if you have a group of technically gifted uh, investors, then those investors will be able to understand what it takes to bring a drug from discovery to market. And then you should go for it, and you're going to create enormous value. But there are many ways to skin a cat, and sometimes a non-technically complex solution is actually better. And so, yes, you could spend a billion dollars and a decade developing the perfect um, you know, weight loss drug, um, and, and, and that might consume you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of any particular venture firm's um, capital. On the other hand, you could invent something like we did with Omada Health. Um, I was the very first 
uh, one of the very first investors in Omada Health, which was um, founded by uh, two guys, Sean Duffy, who was a uh, MD, MBA candidate at Harvard, uh, and a guy named Adrian James, who worked uh, at IDEO. And they took uh, a really well-known regimen um, for pre-diabetics. If you're diagnosed as a pre-diabetic and you lose 6% of your body weight, you will not progress to full-on diabetes. And of course, that has all sorts of benefits. You you are healthier. The health system has less cost. Um, you know, you you don't have the complexities of, of, of diabetes down the road. And, of course, you save, you might save yourself a lifetime of having to inject insulin. And so Amada Health has a program where you get online and you are matched in a kind of uh, peer-reinforcing group of between six to eight people. And together, as pre-diabetics, you go through this non-drug uh, non-pharmaceutical, non-medical device regimen of just losing 6% of your body weight. That program has prevented more uh, cases of pre-diabetics um, progressing on to full diabetes than any blockbuster drug out there. And so you can have the same and even perhaps bigger impact uh, on real problems um, with people who, you know, again, think differently and are not just kind of going down a singular um, pathway that has been well-defined um, in, in some sort of technocratic fashion. Um, you know, one thing I should say here is, um, you know, people, the founders that we work with, um, we don't want them to be strictly, strictly technical, but they have to have some familiarity and technical competence. They have to be able to build and manifest the thing that they're envisioning. And so, you know, I don't want to kind of convey the fact that we will, we'll, you know, invest only in Luddites. That's not, that's not the case at all. But we find that the most interesting founders, at least that play to our strengths and the assets that we have brought, are people who are technically competent, but um, who, who have that spark of something else, who think laterally, who, to, to steal the, the old Apple ad campaign, who think different. No, I think that insight makes a lot of sense. And I think there's actually enough room in this space for different kinds of funds to come up or, or different funds to carry forth different theses. And it actually relates to my next question, which is, you know, a little bit more on the actual investing climate and, and valuations. You know, I think in your space, particularly in seed stage investing, there's, um, you know, a lot of different types of activity. Um, and I think the biggest activity is just the rise of many, many more micro VC funds. So I have a two part question for you, which is the first part is, you know, what do you think of saturation of capital at your stage? And the second question is, you know, what's your current thought on valuations in tech and and the existence or, or inexistence of a, of a bubble. And, you know, when I think of the bubble question, I, I think it's really interesting because you can err on the side of there being one. Cash is cheap. The environment's frothy. You know, there's a saturation at the micro stage. Um, you know, we also had a kind of a wave of grow-at-all-costs companies, even though we're now retreating a bit from that thesis. But I think you can also err on the opposite side, which a lot of, you know, visionary folks have, have talked about and, and go as so far to argue that we're in a tech bust. You know, PE multiples are low. Uh, cash balances for public tech companies are high, and there'll be something to the tune of a trillion in, in buybacks and dividends just across the Fortune 500, which, you know, unlike the late 90s, is 20-fold of all of private tech investing. So, you know, when I think about it, the way I see it is it boils down to one concept, and, and that is if you believe that the generational companies are getting built right now, as opposed to companies that would, you know, create value if they time the markets correctly via a favorable financing uh, activity, it's hard to see how even the bubble question is, is relevant, right? Because even if it is a bubble and it's slightly warmer, 
ostensibly the value created from these generational companies is just going to be so large that it doesn't really matter. So what do you, you know, what do you think of saturation of capital at the seed stage and, and the sustainability of that? And then second, what are your thoughts on whether or not we're in a bubble? Yeah, those are, that's such a good um, way to synopsize it. Um, at the very earliest stages, um, you know, I, I think two, two, there is kind of always a double-edged sword. So the, so the saturation of capital, I think, has two major effects. Um, the positive effect is that it makes it more likely that people who have a desire to start a business or start a company, uh, start something they dreamt about since they were a kid, it actually makes it more possible for them to do it. Um, and that's one of the real missions of X Fund, which is, you know, we want to kind of create uh, credible alternatives for entrepreneurs who may graduate from school and who may graduate with some school debt and, you know, under you know, the you know, a generation ago, their choices were, were fairly stark. They were either, you know, join some high paying job, join Google or join Goldman Sachs, or if you wanted to really start a company, you'd have to you'd have to starve and eat ramen and no one would fund you. And that's why I think when you when you saw the prominent um, people who came out of directly from college or dropped out of college, they could really afford to do it. I mean, Bill Gates, his dad, was a was a fairly well-off lawyer in Seattle. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's parents run, ran a you know, thriving uh, medical practice, dental practice, um, in, in, uh, in one of the suburbs in New York. And so these are people who could have afforded to do it. So I think that the saturation of capital at the margin will tip uh, potential entrepreneurs into our realm. So instead of being locked up and joining Google or Goldman Sachs forever, um, they'll actually give this a try. Um, the other side of this, the other, the most negative side to me is that um, you know to build a company, you really need a critical mass of excellent people, and in an environment in which every atomized person can raise her own round and and build her own company, um, you just don't. It's more difficult to get agglomerations of, of of truly talented people because all those talented people will all have the alternative to go off and start their own thing. Um, and so, one of the kind of exciting things about being invested at the seed stage is that. Yeah, sure, we see a lot of people and we, we kind of oftentimes wish that A plus B plus C would get together and start a company instead of start three separate companies. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's at the seed stage, you know, well over half of um, most seed companies will eventually go under because they'll, they, you know, they'll be very worthy experiments, but they'll be, in some cases, they'll be failed experiments. And so when the founders of those failed companies come back to market, they are so much smarter, they're so much more experienced, they know what they're looking for, and they become, in my view, more and more and more backable. Um, and so, you know, when, when we look at, you know, your second question of, is there is there a bubble? Um, you know, arguably, there's a bubble for a very small handful of the so-called unicorns, especially unicorns that are, aren't yet profitable, um, you know, maybe don't justify the private market valuations that they've achieved. Um, but in the seed stage and the early stage, it has become fairly rational. Um, sure, you, there's a lot of overfunding of seeds, but man, is it difficult now to really graduate from seed to Series A? You really have to have proved yourself in a way that, you know, traditional Series A, you know, even five or six years ago, uh, would not have had to. Um, today, when you when you come up to the market for Series A, people expect that you have a full-time team. People expect that you have a product that's already launched in the marketplace. People expect there to be, you know, if not big, you know, kind of absolute magnitude 
a steep slope. Um, and that didn't used to be the case for Series A. Series A used to be, you know, you could have you could rate a Series A by saying, you know, me and my buddy, we're going to start this thing, and here's our PowerPoint. Um, and the bar has really gone gone up. Um, and I think that's that's probably a good thing, but it's also not indicative of a of a real bubble when the quote unquote real money gets put into these companies um, post seed. And so, so what do you think? You know, looking forward, we see for venture and tech in 2017. You know, what are the big stories? Is it financing side where we see you know a tech return to a wave of IPOs? Is it on the technology side where you know we're seeing the maturation of mobile and maybe we start to see a new underlying tech stack start to go mainstream? You know, all your portfolio companies undergo a 2017 strategic planning process. So how do you think about it as a VC? How do you think about 2017 and consequently where to allocate your time and resources? Yeah, I mean, 2017 in, in so many ways, as we were <laughs> discussing before uh, we got on the on the podcast here, it is a, it is a wild card. It's where I think we're in for a, a very wild ride. Uh, I think the president-elect um, has not really talked about a lot of tech issues. Um you know the the, the 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 grumblings that are or the kind of reading the tea leaves that are coming out of um, this uncertain time uh, point to things like the end of net neutrality. Um, point to you know in some cases you know in, at least during the campaign some fairly harsh words about you know for instance Apple bringing all of its manufacturing back to America, which you know which would have incredibly significant impacts, um, obviously, to those companies, but all the way down the line to, um, you know, to people's incentives as to whether they want to start companies. We're seeing a lot of digital health companies, um, you know, especially that, that, that touch the, um, the, the, the health insurance system, get very nervous because, my God, what, what will Obamacare be replaced by? How will we be able to play there? And there aren't, there aren't, there's not a lot of certainty coming out of uh, out of out of Washington as to kind of what exactly is going to happen. So, um, you know, in, in a mode like this, and I think this this applies to a lot more than venture. Um, in 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 a time of real uncertainty, and and many people think um, this is kind of uh, uncertainty as a strategy in foreign relations, in economic relations. I, I, you know, it forces everyone to simply prepare for the worst. Um, and assume the worst um, because you, at the end of the day, as a business, as a startup, you, you need to survive. And so, you know, many of our companies have um, have raised uh, follow-on financing, even those that have not needed to have done it um, because we just kind of need to store up for the winter. Uh, and so it'll be, on one hand, you know, a period of great uncertainty and, and, and therefore conservatism uh, for current companies. But on the other hand, you know, you know whether you agree with it or not. Um, great disruption is is the kind of lifeblood of this industry, and so if Obamacare is indeed repealed and replaced, um, there will be opportunities there to fill in the gaps. There will be opportunities there um, to make the market more efficient in that new mode, and so I think there's going to be a lot of watching and and looking for opportunity, um, whatever whatever happens. Yeah, no, it should be a it should be an interesting year, and we'll have to we'll have to tune back and circle back at the end of the year to see how it all played out. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'd love to, you know, I'd actually love to take that as a bridge to take a step back now and, and transition to some of the key observations about you know your career and advice for you know folks in my shoes and, and others today. You know, you've you've met tons of amazing people in your career, and you know one of your most notable investments was in Looped uh, with a brilliant and absolutely brilliant, and relatively unknown then, but obviously now incredibly well-known founder and Sam Altman of Y Combinator. 
you know, what do you see in Sam and Wojcicki of 23andMe? You know, some of the other great and some of the other great founders and investors you've worked with over the course of your career. And as a follow-on, if there's a particular person that's inspired you the most, you know, who would that be and, and why? Yeah, so I, I really view um, it, our job, venture capitalist's job, as that of an art dealer. And the people that we back, the entrepreneurs, the founders, are really artists. And the reason I think of them as artists is because they, they have to be fundamentally irrational. They have a blinding vision that they need to realize. Um, and they have and, and they have to be really persistent. They have to believe that, you know, as, as against the thousands of people who are doing exactly what they're doing, that they're going to be successful. They see something that others don't. Um, and it's really up to the art dealer, the, the venture people, to be open-minded enough to see it too. Um, and so a lot of people say, well, you know, don't you, aren't you looking for people just like yourself? Um, and, and my answer is, well, if you, if you are a very successful founder, probably kind of um, repeat founder uh, and, and entrepreneur, then yes, perhaps you are looking for people like yourself. But for the vast majority of, of venture people, they don't need to be uh, good artists. They need to be good art dealers. They need to know enough about art to look at a painting and say, you know what, that's a good painting. I'm going to get you into shows. I'm going to have you positively reviewed, and I will sell your paintings. And if you're successful, I'll be successful. If I make you a star, then, then the art dealer will do well as well. Um, and so, you know, the things that we're looking for, um, you know, it's, it's, really hard to, it's really hard to say. Um, everyone looks for different things, and I think there's a real human um, compulsion to kind of look for people who are very similar to you, which I think is wrong unless, unless you are truly a gifted founder. I mean, there are some artists who then become very good art dealers, but not many. Um, and so it, it really is a, it, a type of pattern recognition of great people at the right time, doing the right thing, uh, and you know your audience, the people who listen to this podcast, people who you know are in some manner affiliated with Harvard or other elite universities, have a real advantage in that in that world because basically you you're, you exist in an environment in which when you look to your left and you look to your right, they're all extraordinary people in some manner, um, and and you know one of the things that um, I, I think is so great about this job is. You, you you get you put you put yourself in the in the in the path of so many amazing people, and it's kind of up to you to understand what they're doing, um, see if you can help them in any way, and if you feel like you can, and if they feel like you can help them too, um, you both sign on together for for an incredible journey. Um, and so the people that you mentioned, Sam, uh, Anne Wojcicki, I mean, these were all extraordinary people who, once again, had a definitive vision of what they wanted to accomplish, who gave up, who could have done a lot of things. They could have, you know, they could have gotten well-paying jobs elsewhere. They could have finished college. They could have, you know, done a lot of stuff. But instead, they wanted to do this. Um, and I just feel lucky enough to have um, kind of messed with them in a way and understood them and, and helped them along their journeys. So let's talk actually about that concept of, you know, professional development, skill development, um, and, and choosing trajectories in your early career, right? So you were alluding to a little bit earlier that, you know, with the proliferation of micro VC and, and funding at the seed stage levels, a lot of folks that typically would have been locked into going to a McKinsey, a Goldman Sachs, you know, maybe even more often these days, a Google or Facebook, 
can actually start to build their own companies and, and venture out into different pathways uh, you know, that, that are the best personality fit. The, you know, the contrary side to that is you want to put yourself, I believe in this at least, I could be proven wrong by, by you here, but I think that early in your career, you really do want to put yourself in an environment where you're building hard and soft skills and, and you're meeting the right people because I think the decision is exceedingly important given how much of an inflection point moves you make early in your career can become. Skills and network can drive continual return over a period of time, right? The, the point you were alluding to earlier of why there's so many spin-outs from alums of McKinsey or Google or Facebook is because people met you know, their eventual co-founders at those companies or people learned how a successful company actually looks like so they knew you know, what to aspire for. So in a world in which you, know, you do have the ability to you know, start a startup or, or, or do a different option very early in your career, how do you think about balancing you know, what the right dose of you know, some of those tradition, more traditional established trajectories are um, you know, versus just getting out there on your own? Do you think there's a time, time dimension to it? How do you evaluate that kind of decision? I think it's a very uh, intensely personal decision. And, you know, living out here in Silicon Valley, you often have this, um, you know, not judgmental is probably too strong a word, but definitely a strong pull to say you can be, quote, unquote, boring and go join, you know, Google or Goldman Sachs, or you can be, quote, unquote, exciting and start your own company. And you really have to do, you really have to kind of tune all of that out and just do what's right for you. You have to decide... Um, kind of what you're good at, and just do that thing. I think it's a shame that many people go down default paths on thinking, especially when they graduate from elite universities. Um, and part of the mission of X1 is to provide credible alternatives to those unthinking default paths. Um, so, the, you know, we want to make it such that when you graduate, if it's true that you dreamt of starting this thing since you were a child, um, yet... Um, you find a lot of financial pressures, family pressures, um, you know, social pressures to do the safe, high prestige thing like join a, join a large corporation. Um, that you actually have a credible alternative that, that when you graduate. That it's not merely kind of Google, Goldman Sachs, or starve and start a company. It's Google, Goldman Sachs, or become the venture backed CEO and founder of this thing that you've dreamt of starting since you were since you were a kid. And I believe that the mission of universities like Harvard is to educate the best and the brightest and to help them have the maximal social impact, intellectual impact, financial impact that they can have on the world. And so if you truly love spreadsheets and financing, um, then fantastic. You should go to an investment bank and you, sh- and you will be good at it and you will, be, you will have your maximal social impact, intellectual, financial impact. But if you're not... We don't want you to do that because that's just simply a, a, a misallocation of resources. And so I think it's great that we live in a world today where many more of those possibilities are open, um, both from the kind of financial aid perspective because, you know, in, in, a, in many elite universities now and well-endowed well universities, um, it's very possible for you to graduate without any debt. Uh, and then post-grad perspective where, you know, there are many more options for you besides going to do on-campus recruiting and and get that kind of, um, you know, well-paying job that you might wake up 10 years from now and think, oh my goodness, I, I really did not like uh, this job. I really did not want to be a corporate lawyer. How, how, what am I doing here 10 years later? Um, and so if we can just change that 
risk profile or that preference set or that set of alternatives, um, I believe we can free up the next Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or um, Alexis and Alexandra founded Guild Group, um, you know, to do the thing that they were meant to do. So let's talk a little bit actually about the place of universities and, and the point you're making here today. You know, you, you got an MBA and a JD from Harvard, one degree you never pursued a career in, and the other where there's actually a lot of conversation about its relevance. You know, if you were at the same juncture in your life today, would you have gone to graduate school and, and done either program? And I'm especially interested to hear your thoughts given all the talk in the venture and tech communities these days around the values of degrees and, and institutional education. Yeah, once again, it's it's very, very personal. I think the, the kind of um, cardinal rule is that you should do what you think you're going to be good at and then find someone or some institution or some company who will value that thing. I think it's really wrong to try to fit yourself into an unnatural mold. So um, if you are going, if you love engineering and you love computer science, I believe you should study it. And yes, it's, it is a quote unquote useful degree um, and it, will, it may have all sorts of knock on benefits. But it's, if you're not, if you just know you, you kind of are not good at that stuff, the worst thing for you to do, I think, is to, is to go ahead and study. I think it's far better for you to be the number one classics graduate or the number one history graduate, the number one English graduate, than a bottom half economics or computer science graduate. Because at the end of the day, the reason you're trying to fit yourself into that unnatural mold is because you believe that a Google or Goldman Sachs, I know, I, I'm sorry I keep uh, harping on them. Um, I don't mean to. I'm just kind of using them as a... As a Set of really excellent institutions that, that happen to be very stable and and, um, and and well compensated, but I believe that a Google, Google or Goldman Sachs um, is going to prefer the number one history graduate to a bottom of the barrel uh, computer science or economics graduate because you know they'd rather have someone who who showed real aptitude, who was actually really good at something that they can teach to do the thing they want to do instead of someone who you know did something that you know, that was quote unquote useful, but was actually not very, not very good at it. Um, and so if you have a real passion around uh, any field, I think you should study that field and then you're going to find someone who values it. And uh, once again, an institution like X Fund is going to value the, the number one classics graduate over a bottom of the barrel computer science or, or economics graduate. In fact, the last um, company we funded um, was founded by a classics graduate from Oxford. Um, and he started a company called Zumper. His name is Ant Giorgiades. And, uh, and the company is, by some counts, the number one player in the residential real estate um, uh, market now. And so it's, it's you know, he studied what he loved. He studied what he was really good at, um, and he found a group of people who valued that. And I think that's really the, the key to life. You should not study something or get into a field that, that you're doing for, for any other reason than, than the fact that you think it's useful. Yeah, and so actually that, that harps very closely to the final question I was going to ask, which is you know, what your best advice for students graduating from school and, and young professionals in the workforce these days is, and you know, what the biggest takeaway you think is critical to think through as folks think about their career paths. And from our conversation, it really sounds like, you know, be intentional, right? Think through what you're interested in, what you personally love, what your, you know, unique strengths are, you know, try to be the number one and double down on those strengths, 
as opposed to, you know, a bottom half um, strong player in, in things that the majority of other folks are doing. But it sounds like, you know, really introspect and, and be intentional in whatever it is that you might do. Yeah, that's totally, that's what, you know, I asked the same question, um, you know, when I was at um, HLS, I was the research assistant to a visiting professor there named Bob Posen. Um, Bob was the uh, former vice chairman of Fidelity Investments. He had grown that organization from a, you know, small regional organization to the trillion dollar behemoth um, that it became. Um, he's a very talented angel investor, operator. He's a uh, limited partner with X Fund. And I asked him the, that question. I said, Bob, I'm about to get out into the real world now. What advice do you have for me? And he gave me um, the three gems that I've carried around uh, since. Uh, gem number one is he said, just what you said, Ramin, know your differentiation. If you're good at something, know what it is and keep doing it. Um, number two was be part of a growing pie, not a shrinking pie. Um, even if you're really, really, even if you're really, really good, um, you know, getting into I don't know something like print publishing is going to be tough because it's just a shrinking pie. Um, whereas when you're part of a growing pie, you know, your your talents and your efforts are going to be amplified and and and, uh, and and you will rise and make other people rise with you. And third is work with great people. Um, if you have a chance to uh, join a company that you're really excited about but you're not so sure about the people or a company that you're not so excited about but you really love the people, always choose the latter. Um, and I followed that advice that Bob gave me and I, I have to say I, I fully agree with it and I, I pass it on to you guys. Well, Patrick, this has been an incredibly insightful conversation. So thanks, you know, thanks again so much for taking the time to share so many great lessons and, and key observations from your incredibly successful career. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Ramin. Thank you so much.